Amen. Amen. The uh, sprouts can be dismissed at this time. Children, uh, two through kindergarten. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew chapter 4. I was um, truly just uh, blessed by our singing together today, Um, because I sharing and prayers and you know I I feel like I need this like I need to come and get together with you guys and sing truths about God and about who we are and about our place in God's family. Um, Matthew chapter four, verse seventeen. Read along with me, uh, or follow along with me, rather, while I read. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This this has been a difficult week for many people, hasn't it? It's been a crazy week um, for many people. My heart, I feel like, has been heavy all week long. Um the father of one of our members passed at his funeral. Um, The life that was lost right here, outside of our steps. Um, Keeping the kids in class, in school, can't go on the playground, afraid of retaliation. Um, Our fellow member, Kenny, lost his cousin over on Fulton Avenue to violence. I feel like my, uh, my heart has been just, just these weights hanging on it all week. Um, yet, at the same time, there is like this strange irony that God, God does something in the midst of all that that causes us to long for a different and a better kingdom than the one that we're currently in. Like we currently look around at the rulers, the principalities, the powers, whatever it is that sort of rule this age, that rule the streets, that rule our health, that rule whatever. And it grips us. And we long for something better. Um, 
we are entering into something better. A picture, a description of something better. A better kingdom. What I, I want to do is, before we get into this, I want to just pray. I want to specifically pray for our brother uh, Kenny and his family. I want to pray for Shade and her family, for the family of the uh, brother that lost his life out here. We're actually, as a church, going to go out there at the end of the service and pray, um, sort of for the city right there um, by the tree. I want to begin for just that, this intercessory prayer, and then that God would speak to us today, because I know that I need God to speak to me this morning. Amen? So if you would join me, let's actually stand together as we pray. Father, we uh, come to you this morning uh, really more in a state of mourning and lament than uh, in a state of just feeling uh, like we want to rejoice and celebrate. And I think that's okay. Um, I, I believe that we see that in the scriptures. I uh, we read the Psalms and we see laments, we see mourns, and um, you want us to weep. You want us to mourn and lament this world, the brokenness, the sin that we see all around us. And God, really death seems to be the very worst thing that sin can possibly do, bring about. It's, uh, it's the end result, really, of this broken world that we live in. Yet, God, we do, we are led into celebration because it is when we come to you and we come together that we are reminded that death is actually not the end and that Jesus has conquered death. While Easter is next week, we're celebrating Easter this week as well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in that. God, I, I do just want to uh, uh, pray an intercessory prayer for our members and their families and for those families in this community, in this city. Um, I do want to lift up Kenny and his family to you. Uh, I, I pray that they, uh, they, they grieve well, that they walk through this together as a family, uh, united, um, that, they, uh, uh, that they trust that you are indeed God through all of this chaos. I pray that you use Kenny specifically to be the light uh, to his cousins and aunts and uncles. God, I continue to lift up Sade and her family to you as well. The pain of walking through that loss, Lord. I thank you for Shade's heart, for her testimony, for her uh, perseverance. God, we pray for the family of the, the man who lost his life out here. Lord, walk with them. Let them know that you are here, that you love them, that you want them. For the other lives lost on Fulton Avenue, we pray the same for those families. God, as we get into this word, as we open up this, these scriptures, and as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, first of all, I pray that you show us what it is. Show us what it is, and then show us how we can read this and how we can find comfort in this in our daily lives today as we look forward to the kingdom that is now and also that is to come. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may take a seat. So, um, many of you know that we are starting a new sermon series today, teaching through uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus gave a sermon on a mount, all right? That's why we call it that. Um, I would say it's the greatest sermon ever, 
because it came from the very lips of Jesus, and Jesus was a better preacher than I am. Can you believe that? Everybody say amen, of course. Um, Let me tell you the difference between my preaching and Jesus' preaching, honestly. Uh, When I preach, or any other preacher for that matter, anybody that's called to preach, our only authority comes from when we are like resting and then proclaiming the truths that are found in this book, okay? So the only authority that I have over you as I preach is when I'm expounding the truth that's here. You see what I'm saying? So I don't have any authority in and of myself. When I spout my opinions to, do, to you, my ideas, even interpretations and, and applications, they only have as much authority as they do truth that's found and rooted and weighted right here in the Scripture. Everybody say amen to that. Now, Jesus, when he preaches, when he gives a sermon, every stinking word is the authority of God. Why? Because Jesus was God. That's like Christianity 101, okay? So if you are uh, new to Christianity, you just got it. Christianity 101, Jesus is God. Everything he speaks comes with the very authority of God, all right? So Jesus can say, you've heard it said, but I say. I can't do that, okay? If you guys ever hear me say, uh, go to Romans you know, and I read something, you've heard it say, uh, but brother goes against the law, brother. But I say, immediately write me off, okay? I can't do that. My only authority, my job as a preacher actually, is to take what we find here, including the Sermon on the Mount, and expose it, the truth that's here, and then help you to understand it, to interpret it, and to apply it into your life. That's my job, all right? The way Jesus preaches is just entirely different. He just goes, and he says things, and we hang on to every word as the very word of God. And so, Jesus, when he opens his mouth and he gives a sermon, we ought to listen, correct? So what we're doing right now is we are going to take the next couple months, really, and go through these three chapters and root ourselves into the Sermon on the Mount Mount, and try to understand um, what Jesus was saying and what it means for us and how we can apply it to our lives today. And here's what I think you'll find. As you read chapters 5, 6, and 7, which, by the way, I implore you to do. If I can make any request of you, um, read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 over the next couple months, like regularly. Immerse yourself in this. Uh, Incorporate it into your daily devotional time. Read a couple verses every day, maybe. Read the whole thing in bulk. Read it out loud. Just just go through it and, and act like you're preaching it. Maybe it's what Jesus sounded like. Read it, and here's what I think you'll find. What I think you'll find is a picture of something, a description of something, and a kind of person that is more beautiful than you could have ever imagined without this sermon, okay? But I think you'll also find something that's more condemning, more convicting than anything else you've ever heard. Earlier uh, this week, I read this out loud sitting at my desk uh, in our office space, and I was just kind of reading it in my preaching voice. And um, by the time I had finished, one of my interns was like hovering over the partition wall, um, just like sucked into this sermon right here. And we sort of both ended with just like this awe and this time of silence and like, wow. 
And the impression we were both left with as we read the entire sermon through was this. That was more beautiful. That was a picture of something more beautiful than I could have ever imagined without it. And it's something more convicting than I've ever heard in my life. D.A. Carson, uh, the theologian, he, he put it like this. He said, the more I read these three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the more I am drawn to them and the more I am shamed by them. You see, when I was uh, preparing this message and getting ready for this, I actually thought about calling this message the bug zapper. Because that's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is. You guys have seen a bug zapper? We used to have one in my backyard growing up, and I would love to like watch the bugs zooming in, like, oh, that pretty light. Oh, I love it. You know, ha, got you. A bat flew in there one time. That was awesome. Um, so this is sort of like a bug zapper in that it's beautiful. Like we're the radiance of it, the beauty of it. The, you know, like, look at this purple light. It's glowing. It's warm. I'm drawn to it like a trance. I'm in it. I want that. I'm moving toward it. And then as soon as we get there, we're like, we're zapped. Because the closer we get to it, the more we realize it's not describing what seems to be me. Like, I want that. This is a picture of something that's amazing. It's beautiful. It's more beautiful than I can imagine. And I'm shamed by it. Because I see time after time, line after line, word after word, how I fall short of the Sermon on the Mount. It zaps us. The same light that sucks us in destroys our flesh. But that's a good thing. Amen? Because God saves people who have flesh that's been destroyed. It's been smashed. It shows us that we need a Savior. So we are beginning the sermon. We're going to go through it. Today is sort of a very long introduction. Um, so essentially kind of think of today as my introduction for next week's sermon. So instead of giving you a two-hour sermon, which I knew most of you would actually probably want, but for the few of you that don't, um, I decided I would break this up into two different sermons. So this is the introduction, and then next week we're actually going to get into the teaching. Everybody cool with that? Um, let me start with somewhat of a rationale as to why we're going into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I've never preached through the Sermon on the Mount myself. Um, I, I, think, I don't think it's going to be an easy thing to do, number one. Uh, number two, it's not always easy to know what to do with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, whether we should apply it, whether, it's, whether we shouldn't, shouldn't apply it. What is the Sermon on the Mount? There's a lot of questions, sort of theological questions that theologians debate about the Sermon, sermon on the Mount. Um, but here's why I want to get into it, why I feel like we need to get into it. I, I feel like over the last couple months, the Spirit has been uh, just kind of driving me back into the Sermon on the Mount and giving me this desire to go through it with you guys uh, and, and to do, it, to do a, a series in it. Um, for two reasons. There's two reasons why I believe that this is sort of urgent, why we as a church, and then maybe broader, why we as a humanity, as a culture, as a city, need to listen to Jesus' words right here. The first one is the problem with Christians in particular. The second one is a problem with humanity in general. All right? Let me unpack that for you. The first one, a problem with Christians in particular 
particular. There is sort of this ongoing problem that, the, that exists within the church, globally, locally, with, indiv- uh, with individual Christians, people that profess to be Christians, people that attend church, people that don't attend church. There are these problems, uh, this age-old problem which exists today of law versus grace. Is it law? Are we under the law? Are there things that we have to do? Or is it grace? Are we under grace? Is the law canceled? Are the commands canceled? Um, So on one hand, let me kind of paint this picture, and some of you may find yourself in one of these two categories. On one hand, we have what we could call the legalist, all right, or the moralist. This is a person who, if you, if you ask them uh, how they have come into a relationship with God, they would typically tell you about something they did. How did, you beco- how did you become a Christian? How did you come into a relationship with God? How are you saved? They would say something like, well, I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I went, started going to church. I, I just changed. I, I started to forgive people. I started doing something. Like, I did something. And because I did something, essentially I earned, they don't always say this, but this is, this is how their mind works, I earned God's grace, or I earned a relationship with God, all right? And this can be very subtle. I mean, it can be very subtle. We can be someone who claims grace, we claim that we walk by grace, yeah, I'm saved by the cross, but really, really we believe that God is only pleased with us when we do the right thing. When we do something, we earn his approval, his thumbs up, all right? The moralist, the legalist, the person who doesn't understand grace, and so they would read the Sermon on the Mount, and this is why we're doing a very long introduction for this sermon. This person would read the Sermon on the Mount. They would feel the weight of conviction, and they would say, I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to put myself on a self-improvement plan. I'm going to figure out how I can live this out. I'm going to try to do better. And when they do good, okay, they turn the other cheek. Slap, bam, turn the other cheek. Like literally, maybe they turn the other cheek, all right? They turn the other cheek. They do what Jesus says in here. When they do these things, they get puffed up. Look at me. I'm doing well. God should be pleased with me. God should, by the way, bless me. And oh, if something goes wrong, like what happened this last week, like the entire week, if something were to go wrong in my life, well, I'm just going to turn my back on God because he owes me something because I've done all of these good deeds. I've behaved well. Are you guys following here? The moralist, the legalist, the one who earns God's blessings and favor. Very destructive when he gets into the Sermon on the Mount. It puffs him up, or if he doesn't do well, if he fails, then he's shattered. He feels condemned. Not sure if he can stand before God. Not even sure if he's a Christian. The moralist. The legalist. Now, that's, that's sort of one picture, okay? The other group that you may find yourself in would be the licentious. The person who says, okay, so we have grace. Um, And and where there is sin, there is grace. Amen? So let us keep sinning. 
so that grace may abound. You know, it's possible to preach grace and be misunderstood. It's possible to preach grace and for an individual to take that and say, I have a license to be driven by my flesh, to be driven by my desires. I have a license to, they would never say this, but this is what they're saying, to be my own God. And, and, and the rhetoric that comes along with that is this, quote, unquote, God's got me. I'm good. God's got me. I've got grace. There's nothing I can do to lose it. God's got me. And so I will continue on sitting so that grace may abound. No one preached grace more than the Apostle Paul. And maybe no one was more uh, misunderstood than the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul in Romans, he says, in his letter to Rome, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a huge statement, is it not? If you like that statement, say amen or something, okay? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like none, zero, nada, no condemnation. Well, what if I, no condemnation, but if this can, no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ. Everybody say, in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so then, Individuals at the time took that and they said, there was literally a doctrine that said, so then, we should go on sinning so that grace may abound. Because where there's sin, there's grace. Let's, let's make much of the grace of God. Let's show how gracious God is. So let's go on sinning. And to show the world how gracious He is. Paul addressed it in the same letter. He said, so then, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? How does he answer that? Certainly not. Like, you don't get it. Like, if you believe that, that we can go on sinning so that grace may abound, if we believe that God's got me, that I'm good to go, I mean, guys, you don't understand grace. You're looking at, the, you're looking at your salvation as, as uh, com- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, complimentary. It's like a complimentary cup of coffee. All right? How many of you drink your whole complimentary cup of coffee? It's worth nothing to you. Is the cross complimentary? Is the grace of God complimentary? Just something that he just kind of randomly threw at you? We do not understand the costliness of the grace of God. We, we do not understand that the grace of God is not complimentary. The grace of God cost God dearly. It cost the Father His very own Son. For God loved the world that He sent His Son to die for the world. It cost the Son His very own blood. Your sin cost Jesus His blood. So yes, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Indeed. And every time we sin, we remember That is why Jesus bled. That's what it cost him to save me, a sinner. So on one hand is the legalist, on the other hand is the licentious, the one who doesn't understand grace, the unruly, the the corrupt, 
Let's go on sinning so that grace may abound. God's got me. This person doesn't grieve over their sin. They don't hate the dark. They see it all as a license to continue living according to whatever uh, they want to do. So when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, this is what, what I want you to do, all right? First of all, recognize that the Sermon on the Mount smashes both of these, all right? Now, if you were stuck in one of these, you could get into the Sermon on the Mount and have some big problems. But if you realize that the Sermon on the Mount in and of itself, and then broadly understanding the work of Christ, it smashes both of these. It, it, it frees you from the chains of both of these, from the chains of trying to earn the approval of God. We hit the Sermon on the Wall and it smashes us like a wall. And it, uh, sermon on the Wall. Sermon on the Mount, it smashes us like a wall and says you cannot earn the approval of God. You cannot do this. Give this to someone and say, go ahead and try it. It's impossible. You can't. Yet at the same time, we hit this, and, and how can we walk out of here licentious? Listening to the heart of Christ. So it smashes us and it frees us from the bondage of these two pieces. Now, that is the first reason I think we need to go into the Sermon on the Mount for the next couple months. The second reason is this. It's broader. The second reason is the, is the broader problem of humanity as a whole when we look around generally at humanity, the problems that we see. Why are we so drawn to the Sermon on the Mount? If you were to read it, ask yourself, why am I so drawn to this? Why are secular scholars of all brands drawn to the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, the most secular scholar will say that this is some of the best teaching that has ever existed. Why are we so drawn to that? It's because it stands in such stark contrast to what is. You see what I'm saying? Like we look at humanity and this is essentially the opposite of everything. So here's humanity. Here's the law of humanity, the rule that we live by. This is humanity. Turn it upside down and you find the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we can go through it. You could literally walk through the whole thing and turn it and say, yeah, that's the problem with humanity, that we don't do that. I mean, so we get to this piece on anger in verse 21. Anger. The problem with humanity is that we minimize anger. Jesus doesn't. Jesus says anger is like murder. Well, we say anger in our society, it's fine as long as you don't actually kill somebody. Is it? And then, and then someone harbors anger against you. Is it really fine? We see the problem of humanity there. Um, we, could, we could go through it. Lust. In our culture, we say, look, but don't touch. Right? Lust is okay. And then someone, you catch someone looking at your girlfriend. Okay. Problem of humanity. Lust. Divorce. The, 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 the belief that if I'm, I'm just done, I don't love anymore, get out. Commitments, uh, failure and commitments. Jesus says, let your yes be yes. Well, we live in a culture where yes does not mean yes. Yes means, I don't know. No does not mean no. Retaliation. Why is it right now that the students are hunkered down? Retaliation. Fear of revenge. We live in a world of retaliation, of taking things into our own hands. 
an endless cycle of violence. Greed. Where do we even begin with greed? As greed rules the day in so many spheres of life. Religious hypocrisy in verse, or chapter 6. Religious hypocrisy. The problem of humanity. The churches are called to be the light. Religious hypocrisy. How can we say that we are the light? Worry and anxiety that grips us and that holds us. Judgmental attitudes. A lack of faith. A lack of care for the other. We can go through the entire sermon and turn every line and say that's what's wrong with the world that we live in. And so, guys, like if we could take this and give it to the world and say, okay, everybody live according to this. Wow, that would be awesome. Like this is the answer to the problem of humanity or at least points out the problem and at least points us maybe to the solution. However, the very worst thing we could do is to just simply give this to a non-Christian and say, go follow it. Go do this. Go do this. Legislate this. Why? Because it's impossible for them. It's impossible. Let me do this. this that leads me actually to three like, bad views of the sermon. All right, can I hit this? I want to go through three bad views um, that are somewhat prevalent. Um, ways that we look at this sermon. Um, if you want to write these down, because you may find yourself falling into one of these camps. The first bad understanding is this. It's the just follow Jesus view. The just follow Jesus view. This, this idea that Jesus has come, he was a great teacher, there's a new social order, and if we could just simply get beyond all this doctrine stuff, if we could just simply get beyond all this bit about sin and substitutionary atonement and the Holy Spirit, spiritual warfare, if we could just get beyond all of that, and if we could just follow Jesus, then we would be, we would be okay. I was on a, uh, another church's website earlier this week, and part of their vision statements, one of them was this. Uh, they said, to help people that are not Christians become followers of God in the way of Jesus. Let me repeat that. To help people that are not Christians, become followers of God in the way of Jesus. Now, at first, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Oh, so generous and open. Like, you don't even have to be a Christian. Just come and, hey, we're just going to, like, if we're going to go through the sermon, we just want you to, like, learn how to follow Jesus. We're just, we're just here, just a bunch of Jesus followers, just trying to follow Jesus, just trying to do what Jesus says. And uh, you don't even have to believe all of these things that we believe. You don't have to believe anything about sin. If they'll believe anything about the cross, all that blood, yuck. We just want to follow Jesus, right? And then we prefer terms like calling ourselves Jesus followers or we are someone who just loves Jesus. I don't like to call myself anything religious. I just tell people I love Jesus or I follow Jesus. I try to do what Jesus, what Jesus says. Just look at it. He's kind of my teacher. And that's cool. 
And I get that, and that's true. We are followers of Jesus. I mean, that's what disciple means, is that we're people that are following Jesus, all right? We are people that love Jesus. But do you know what? In, you know what? In the, the Christians in the New Testament, you know what they referred to themselves as? There's one instance where Paul refers to them as, or Peter, I guess it is, refer, or Luke, I guess it is, that refers to them as followers of Jesus. There's one instance, or two instances, they're called Christians. In the New Testament, the early believers see themselves, view themselves as in Christ. They are people, like broken, shattered people who are in Christ. And so here's the problem with the just follow Jesus view. It defines us by something we do. By something we do. I follow Jesus. Who are you? I'm someone that follows Jesus. I'm someone that is obedient to Jesus. I'm someone that reads the Sermon on the Mount and I do that. It's me. It's about me and what I do. Not so for the New Testament Christians. They defined themselves as people who are in Christ. People who are defined by who they are in. People who are defined by who they are part of the body that they are part of, the power that they are part of. Now, as a result, they follow Jesus. But their definition is not just someone who is trying to be obedient. And guys, if we take a just follow Jesus view and define people and define ourselves by how well we follow Jesus, we are all to be damned. Because we cannot Be aware of that view, of how it may slip into your life. The second, the second poor view in how we can view this Sermon on the Mount is this. The it's all for later view. The it's all for later view. Um, not extremely popular today, however, to some degree. The idea is, and this is a theological view, um, the idea is, is that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, everybody say kingdom, the kingdom of God to the Jews. And here he's introducing the kingdom, here he gives them the Sermon on the Mount, which they are to follow in the kingdom. However, the Jews reject Jesus. And so sort of accidentally, the kingdom is kind of set aside and the Gentiles are allowed now to believe in Jesus and have the gospel. And so now we're sort of living in this dispensation or this age of grace in the church. And someday, down the road, in the sweet by and by, the kingdom will come back into, into light and the Sermon on the Mount will sort of be prevalent again and important to us. But for now, don't worry about it. All right? That's for some sweet by and by future. And they would see this as commands, a, a new type of law, if you would. Things that we must do to be part of the kingdom. But don't worry about it. So that's the second bad view. The third bad view is this. The third bad view is Jesus accomplished everything, so ignore it. All right? This, this view would essentially say this. You read the Sermon on the Mount, it describes the righteous person. 
you could not be that righteous person. Impossible for you to be that righteous person. Jesus accomplished this for you. His righteousness is given to you and imputed to you. So now, just ignore it. Just ignore it. All right, now, um, the majority of what I just said is true. All right, you, this is a description of the righteous person. This is a description of the person who will inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, you could not be that person, and so Jesus was. Everybody say amen. And Jesus' righteousness on the cross is imputed to you so that you may stand before God as a citizen of his kingdom, righteous with the righteousness of Christ. However, that very last bit that we, that we may then lead ourselves to, so just ignore it, is problematic. If you look at Matthew 28, if you have your Bible, you could turn there. Um, Jesus opens Matthew, or I'm sorry, Matthew opens Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Matthew chapter 5, one of the first couple chapters, bam, Sermon on the Mount for three chapters. Matthew ends his gospel in Matthew chapter 28 with what we call, and which we read this morning, the Great Commission. And look at the Great Commission in verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You guys get that? So go into all of the world, preach the gospel, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We believe that. We do that, right? We preach the gospel. We regularly are celebrating baptisms. And that third and last bit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there is this sense, I believe, there is this sense of this Sermon on the Mount that we are not to ignore it. That we, there, there's, a, there's a piece of this, there's a sense, I believe, in Jesus preaching this and giving us this, that he actually meant for us to observe it. He actually meant for us to study it, to use it in our lives, to apply it in our lives. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? Those are the bad views. Let me kind of get into what the Sermon on the Mount is and how we should read it. I'll tell you what I believe the Sermon on the Mount is, and then I'm going to try to show you why I believe that. The Sermon on the Mount can be best understood as a kingdom manifesto, or as a manifesto given by Jesus of the kingdom of God, a description of who these people look like, a description of the citizen of the kingdom, a description of the ways of the kingdom, the norms of the kingdom, the witness of the kingdom. Let me, sh- let me show you why, why I believe that. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds. All right, so here's Jesus. He's, he's walking around. He's healing people. I mean, miraculous things, paralytics, getting up, amazing things happening. Crowds start following him, like a lot of people. Wherever he goes, he's sort of like the rock star kind of scene right now. Just all over the place. Jesus, everybody's following him. The best thing since sliced matzo, right? Here's Jesus, crowds surrounding him. 
And verse 1, he sees the crowds. It says he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, so he goes up on this mountain. Now, I don't believe that's to escape the crowds. If anything, I believe it's to try to find a venue, a place to address whoever it is that now comes to him. So he goes up on the mountain. And when he sat down, so in the ancient world, um, when there was someone teaching, the rabbi would be teaching, he would be sitting, and everybody else would be standing to listen, which I kind of like that. We should, we should reverse this. And I'll sit. I'll just like bring my easy chair in, and you guys stand. Can we do that next time? So Jesus sits down, and he opens or he sits down, and his disciples, it says, right there in verse 1, his disciples come to him. So who is this addressed to? Let's be clear. His disciples. Now, Matthew uses this word disciples very broadly. He's not using this word disciples just to refer to the 12 disciples. Throughout the gospel, he uses the word disciples to broadly refer to all people who are interested in hearing the voice of Jesus in following him, and in hearing what he has to say, and listening to his instruction, okay? So this is, these are probably crowds of people, most likely, I believe, that are now coming to him as he sits down, and he's addressing the disciples, followers. We, let's, let's just, Christians, all right? Citizens of the kingdom. This is to these people. So what this is not, then, is a description of how to become a Christian. And this is an important point. When Jesus opens this up and he goes into the entire Sermon on the Mount, he's not saying you must do all of these things to become a Christian. You must do all of these things to become a disciple. What does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to become a disciple of Christ? Well, let's go back to verse 17. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying this. Look at it. Repent. Everybody say repent. So that means turn. That word repents literally means change of mind. All right? It doesn't even mean something that you do. It means a change of mind and a turning of mind, like a renewal of the mind. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, I'm cha- I'm, my mind's changed. Repent. Why? Look at it. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we can use those terms interchangeably. It's here. It's alive. It's active. It's at hand. You can now enter into it. And so it's time now to turn, to change your mind, to repent. Look at verse 23. When he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, look at it, the gospel of or the good news of the kingdom. So he's going around saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here, it's at hand, repent. He's preaching the gospel, he's preaching the good news. We see elsewhere that Jesus says repent and believe the gospel. That's how we enter into the kingdom. It's here, it's alive. Listen, the kingdom of God is among us now. It's not just something that is to come later. The kingdom of God is alive now. There is a a 
true kingdom where God is ruling and reigning in our hearts and in our lives. It's not a geographical kingdom. It's not a kingdom that we can right now see, that we can touch. But nonetheless, it is a kingdom that is alive. It's a kingdom that is active. And let me give you a picture of this kingdom that we're talking about. I was sitting with a friend a few weeks ago, and uh, my friend was talking about the challenges of life. Anybody have challenges in this life? Tears in this life? Loss in this life? Trying to understand our faith in light of the world that we actually live in. And so we went to Revelation 21. And in Revelation 21, we see a phenomenal description of something that is to come. If you want to turn there in your Bible. In Revelation 21, then I saw, the writer says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse, 14, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And what I told my friend was, you are a citizen of that. You are a citizen of this kingdom. Listen, becoming a Christian, repenting and believing the gospel is nothing Nothing less than a transfer of citizenship from the world that we live in, this kingdom of darkness gripped by anger and retaliation and lust and greed, a kingdom that is darker than we can imagine. A transfer of citizenship in this kingdom to citizenship in that. So we are citizens of that kingdom. And listen, that kingdom is still to come. There is a sense where the kingdom is still to come. Like I said, we cannot touch it. We cannot see it right now. There is this fullness of it that has not yet come, which one day will as the, as the kingdom of God just crashes to earth. And we see it. And this darkness is no more. The tears are no more. Death is no more but it's also alive now. It's alive in our hearts as we submit ourselves to the King, as we submit ourselves to the Lord, as we are given a new spirit, as we're given a new mind, as we're given a a new heart, as the Spirit of Christ literally enters into us. We have this kingdom now. And what we do on Sundays is we come together and we say this is who we actually are. 
This is what we actually are. You see, throughout the week, we go through this week living in the, in, in, in the political world, in our workforces, living in our neighborhoods, in your homes. We face challenges. We face work. We face loss. We face all of these things in this world. And we are as aliens just passing through. All right? We're strangers in this world. It seems strange to you, doesn't it? But this is what happens when we come together on Sundays. When we come together on Sundays, we're like a bunch of aliens who are taking off our costumes, our human costumes, if you would, and we're saying, hey, this is who we actually are. We're actually, we're, I mean, we are a family here. We have a real union with one another that is closer than any other kind of union that we can imagine in the world. We have a connection with each other throughout the week, seven days, that we can't always feel, but it's there. And we come together on Sundays and we sing these songs of truths that are found in the Scriptures and we listen to the Word that's preached. And what we're doing as we fellowship, as we pray with each other, as we put our arms around each other, as we listen to each other's hearts, what we're doing is reminding ourselves that we are citizens of this. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. This is who we really are. We are people, not just simply trying to do something. We are people that are in Christ. Look what happens. Look at verse verse 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them. He opened his mouth and taught them. If Jesus speaks, I want to listen. If our King, who is opening up the kingdom of God, where we can transfer from a citizenship in this dark and depraved world, into God's kingdom, into the reality that's more real than what we see. And our king opens his mouth. I want to listen. And what we find in these next three chapters, what we find in this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, presents us a wall for us to smash into this, this first bit, these, these beatitudes we call them, they're like a sledgehammer that knocks us of any bit of pride, knocks us of any bit of flesh. We go on, the righteousness that's required smashes us of any bit of trying on our own. You see what Jesus does? He presents for us a picture of a citizen of the kingdom and we hit it hard. Why? Why? Listen. God saves broken, smashed people. But he doesn't save anybody that doesn't think that they are broken and smashed. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it smashes us in a beautiful way and frees us from trying and then opens us up to sort of somewhat of a manifesto, if you would, this picture, this glorious picture 
of a citizen of the kingdom of God, of the ways of the kingdom of God, and we look at it and we say, we want that. That's what we need. That is the hope that we find. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' goal, is not just simply to create a new ethical code for us to try to follow. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus himself. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount is that we would see Christ all the way through it. That we would see Jesus as the entrance into the kingdom. Christ himself is the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus says, repent. Believe the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news of the kingdom? It's Christ. It's the fact that Christ has arrived and that He has given us, He's granted us entrance into this. He has granted us entrance into the kingdom and an exit from the darkness. What happened 2,000 years ago? What happened on that Palm Sunday when they laid palms down and here comes Jesus in on the donkey, celebrated as king, king of the kingdom. And then a few days later, we find him hanging on a tree that Good Friday. Was it an accident? Was it an accident just because somebody rejected him? Was God the Father up in heaven with his hands in his head, freaking out. This wasn't supposed to happen like this. No. What happened that Good Friday is this great reverse of the scandal, this irony. The king comes into Jerusalem with one purpose, to purchase your citizenship into the kingdom. You see, on the cross, as he bled, his blood purchased you. His blood bought you your citizenship. His blood gave you access into the kingdom of God. His blood gave you access into what we read in Revelation 21, that glorious day that is to come. His blood purchased you into the kingdom and gave you that costly grace so that you may be brought in as a citizen of the kingdom. This kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of humanity that we live in, it is darker than we realize, guys. Just recently we have seen some of the outworkings of that kingdom, haven't we? We've seen the outworkings of the darkness. We've seen where anger leads us, where greed leads us, where, where a, a lust for more leads us, taking what, we, what is not ours. We've seen where that leads us. It's darker than even that. It's, it's darker than we can imagine to where we were chained to it. We were blindfolded. It's like we were all moving toward this fire and we were blindfolded. We thought we were living the life. Well, the blood of Christ grabbed you, took off your blindfold so you could see the reality. 
And he showed you his kingdom. He showed you himself. Look to Christ this morning. Look to the king this morning. Recognize your citizenship this morning in the kingdom of God. You are a blood-bought, grace-given, grace-driven citizen of the kingdom of God. And God has given you His very own Spirit so that you can now have the ability and the desire to listen to what Jesus has to say and to observe all that He commanded. Jesus walked up on the mountain. He sat down. His disciples came to Him and He opened His mouth. Let's listen to what Jesus has to say. Amen? He is your king. You are his. Join us next week as we actually get into the Sermon on the Mount. All right? Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for Christ. We thank you for the fact that you are truly uh, a God of grace and a God of love, and you have brought us not by our own doing, not by our works, but by the grace of Christ through the blood that was shed on the cross. You have bought us, you have purchased us, and you have brought us into your kingdom. God, we do not deserve to be citizens of your kingdom. And so, for that we thank you. Lord, as we begin to study this, as we begin to study the words of Christ, as we begin to get into the Sermon on the Mount here, as we see this beautiful light, this beautiful picture, this description of the citizen of the kingdom, this description of the kingdom itself, the ways of the kingdom, the norms of the kingdom, we ask that you invigorate our faith, that you crush us, that you smash us of any bit of pride, of any bit of our flesh, that you smash us of our licentious behavior, and that we see Christ, and that as driven, driven by grace, driven by simply the fact that we have the favor of you, that we are brought into this kingdom as citizens, God, let us become people, a people that are the light that demonstrate to the world around us that this kingdom is alive, that this kingdom is active. And we, we pray that more people become citizens of this kingdom. Do the work, Lord, that only you can do. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.